Um, chapter 4 ended with this dubious statement that uh, Israel believed Moses and Aaron's presentation of Yahweh's name to them. And uh, chapter 5, it, it challenged that profession of faith, right? Does, does Israel really believe? And so chapter 5 is about the, uh, the sheer depravity of Pharaoh. Uh, before we see Pharaoh chafe against the ten plagues, we need to be convinced that he deserves these ten plagues. Uh, we, we don't have a problem with justice. Uh, we even celebrate justice when we're certain that the person who received justice deserved, deserved it. Remember when Osama bin Laden was killed? On the news, you, you had parades in the streets in D.C., Democrats, Republicans, celebrating justice together. And in a similar way, God makes sure that, that we understand that, that Pharaoh fully deserves justice from God. And we learn the, the larger lesson that all... Sinners who rebel against justice, rebel against God, deserve eternal justice. So in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh to introduce the name of Yahweh to him. They relayed God's command to let his people go. And Pharaoh's response was brazen, it was, it was hostile, rebellion. Uh, Pharaoh said to Moses and Aaron, who's, who's this Yahweh fellow? He, I, don't, I don't know him, I... He doesn't exist to me. You just made up that name. You just want to leave Egypt because you're lazy, remember? And uh, Pharaoh responded last Friday to Yahweh's word with his own word. He said, Yahweh's words were false words. They have no power and authority. Uh, Pharaoh uh, attempts to exalt his own power and authority by imposing his own word on Israel. Uh, if you remember, Pharaoh humiliates Israel by taking away the provision for straw to make bricks while maintaining the same rigorous work quota he set for them. And so during this whole ordeal, Israel clearly capitulates with respect to their faith. Repeatedly, they refer to themselves to Pharaoh as a slave. Remember? They said, where are your slaves? Where are your slaves? And then Israel turns against Moses. They tell him in verse 21, may God look upon you and, ju and, and judge. And so the question, does, does Israel really believe in Yahweh, in chapter 5, we concluded was what? No. And then we concluded, what about Moses' faith in Yahweh in verses 22 and 23 of chapter 5? We, we, we realize that Moses' faith in Yahweh is weak too. It's struggling that, that Yahweh needs to grow Moses' faith to be sure in the rest of Exodus. This is, uh, Moses' faith is, is simply not adequate at this point. Um, and so, this is, this is Israel and Moses' problem. By, by, by the end of chapter 5. They still don't understand what the name of Yahweh means. Remember what Yahweh told him his name meant? Um, he said, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. Uh, God already told Moses that when, remember, when, when, when God already told Moses that when Moses approaches Pharaoh with God's commands, that, that God would, would harden his heart. So if that's the case, remember, Remember, why is Moses saying what he's saying in verse 23 and verse 22? Look, look at chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Why does Moses say that when God already told Moses that this is what was going to happen? Israel, I mean, Moses probably told Israel that Pharaoh would harden his heart at first. So why is Moses and Israel having such a time 
uh, having such a hard time believing in Yahweh. And, and, and the problem was this. Moses and Israel, they still have their own preconceived notions about who God is. They simply expected that God would tell Pharaoh something and that, that Pharaoh would just do it. So when God said earlier he would harden Pharaoh's heart, what did that tell? What does that tell us about the nature of God? That's a question to all of you. He foresees, he, he omniscient, he foresees things, and he was okay, passionate. Okay. He he was kind of warned him and prepared him. So so, what does it tell about reveal about God that he hardens Pharaoh's heart? Softened God, and he's sovereign over what? Evil too. He's sovereign over evil, right? Mm -hmm. And Israel and Moses, they have a hard time accepting that about God. Just like we do today. When you talk about God's sovereignty over evil, they, they don't want to get it. You see, when God shows his eventual ten signs to Pharaoh and when he hardens Pharaoh's heart in the process, God is teaching Israel, I am who I am. I'm beyond what you can conceive of. You can't put me in your little box of understanding. I I don't do what I do on your timeline. I'm sovereign. I do it my own way. God is God. See, God is delivering Israel through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to show the world and to Israel and to Moses that he's not, he's not just sovereign over, over good. He's sovereign over evil. See, Pharaoh is, is, is clearly evil and and Israel and Moses, they don't understand God's sovereignty over Israel. They want to, they just want to put God in their own box. Is God good or is God sovereign? How can it be both? And the answer is he is both. He's good and he's sovereign over evil. He's holy and he's sovereign over all the, all good and evil. So we can't try to uh, force God in our little box of understanding. He is who he is. And he doesn't have an he doesn't have to answer to us. You see, when we try to think of God, when we try to conceive of God, we get things like Star Wars, where there's there's the force and there's the dark side, and they're in this in this impersonal battle with each other. That's kind of the best that we can come up with. But Yahweh is He is who He is. He's sovereign both over good and evil. And and can can you submit to that or not? And Moses and Israel are having, having a hard time submitting to that. So in chapter 6, in response to the unbelief of Pharaoh, the unbelief of Israel, even the unbelief of Moses, how does God respond in chapter 6? Not with justice, but with grace. He responds to the unbelief of his people, not with the justice they deserve, but with pure grace, with mercy. And God begins his gracious response to Moses in verse 1 by reassuring Israel of his eventual total victory over evil. Look what he says in verse 1. Moses said to Mo uh, Yahweh said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. By a strong hand he will let them go, and by a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. What's being emphasized in verse 1? Yes, he's saying he will deliver Israel. But what about 
God's deliverance of Israel is God emphasizing in verse 1. Under compulsion? So it's the, the emphasis is the how he will deliver Israel from Egypt. And how will he do it? With his mighty hand. With his mighty hand. Pharaoh won't just let Israel go, he will do what? Drive them out. He will drive them out. Right? And why is that important for God to do? Why can't he just deliver them? That shows he can change the people to... Yes, but I mean, if he delivers them, it still shows he's in charge of evil. Why must he do it by a strong hand? He can change the evil heart. To keep his promise. He still keeps his promise by delivering Israel. He doesn't need to do it by a strong hand. He can still keep his promise to Israel by having Pharaoh let them go. He doesn't need to cause Pharaoh to drive them out. It doesn't have to be a strong hand to keep his promise. It can fully be faithful to his promise by a normal hand. Why does it need to be a strong hand? Well, I know that all the peoples of the world heard about it. And that's why when Israel was going to Canaan, they were in fear of Israel. Okay, sure. But he can still tell, tell the world that. Well, what God is emphasizing by how he delivers them is his total domination over evil. And he doesn't just barely win. He kind of barely wins over evil. God crushes evil. He crushes evil. He has total victory over evil. Like, when we're in awe of, an, of, of, a, of a sports team, you know, last Monday when Korea and Brazil played, at the end of the game, you were in awe of Brazil. Why? Because they crushed Korea 5-1. I mean, it was it was total domination. It was like 3-2, 1-1, shootout, they barely win. Oh, you know, Brazil, okay, you know. See, God, even more so, can't just win by a little bit. Because he's awesome. He's great. He must totally destroy evil. He doesn't need to decimate Pharaoh's army to, to deliver Israel. He doesn't need to do that. God could have kept his promise. He parts the Red Sea. Israel crosses through the Red Sea to the, and they escape. He, he, he covers the sea back over and, and Pharaoh's army doesn't get to cross. Pharaoh's army is spared. But what does he do? He opens the sea. Then Israel crosses the sea. Then, it, then Pharaoh's army follows after them, and the sea totally destroys Egypt's army to show what? God is totally victorious over evil. He utterly defeats evil. God accomplishes absolute victory. In the end, in the end, when God returns, in the end, 
there's going to be no doubt who's the king. No doubt. He will win completely. And it will not be, no question marks, no question marks. Mm. He says in verse 2, I am Yahweh. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I'm not just sovereign over good, I'm sovereign over good and evil. And you can't put me in a box. Will you submit to me or not? Will you give up your preconceived notions of who I am? Now, verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by name Yahweh, I was not known to them. So in Genesis, um, uh, God revealed his name, Yahweh, to them. So they, uh, Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob, they, they, they knew his name, Yahweh. If you look at Genesis, go to Genesis 15. Look, see, see for yourself. And, and, and notice how, how Abram speaks to God. Verse 2, Abram said, O Lord Yahweh, what will you give me? Right? Um, verse 7, And he said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And then, Abraham responds with, O Lord Yahweh. So, um, Abraham and the patriarchs, they know the name Yahweh. And then in verse 3, so going back to chapter Exodus 6, verse 3, God tells them, yeah, they, I told them that my name was Yahweh, but I was not known to them. They didn't know what my name meant. They didn't really see that my full, my full personality, my full character, my full nature, there was... I limited my revelation to them of who I am. But to Moses, to you Israel, I'm showing you what Yahweh means. Right? So the patriarchs, they, they experienced deliverance in a limited sense in Genesis. They saw that God, they saw that uh, God used evil for good. Uh, we saw that God was good in spite of evil. Um, we saw God use evil to bring about a good result. But what didn't we see in Genesis with respect to God and evil? What didn't we see in Genesis with respect to God and evil that we see in Exodus? Despite the evil, God doesn't win. So what, what, what don't we see? We don't, we don't see two things. We don't, in Genesis, we don't see God crushing evil. We don't see God, uh, uh, God's total victory over evil. He, he says he will have victory over evil, but we don't actually see that in Genesis. He turns evil into good. He uses evil events to oh, accomplish good, but that's not the same thing as totally dominating evil. And that's not the same thing as being sovereign over evil, in a sense, ordaining evil. He uses the evil things for his good, but he's not. we don't see him directly using evil like we see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's not a direct relationship. 
So in that, that part of Yahweh's nature and character, we didn't see. And, and so uh, God says to uh, Moses, but I will show it to you. I will show it to you. Can we learn to submit to God, to all that he is? Can we embrace the entirety of Yahweh's name? Look at six, uh, verse 4. And then he said, And I also might, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. He promised he would give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of Canaan. Did he give it to them? Did they ever receive the land? No. So how does he keep his promise? Through resurrection. He must raise them from the dead. God controls good and evil, and he has resurrection, resurrection power over life and death. And furthermore, this power he uses for Israel's good. Verse 5, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in slavery, and I have remembered my covenant. He loves his people, he fully cares for Israel, and he has the power to do something about it. In verses 6 through 8, it's framed with the declaration that God is Yahweh. Look at how verse 6 begins. Therefore say to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh. Look at verse. Look at the way verse 8 ends, I am Yahweh. And we see the phrases repeated in the middle of verse 7. I am Yahweh. Israel needs to fully know Yahweh. Fully know the name. The name of Yahweh. Let's, try to, let's, let's, let's go back to verse 6. So God will uh, bring Israel out from the hard labors of the Egyptians. But it's more than that. He will deliver them from the slavery that is the cause of the oppression. So verse 6, uh, Yahweh, God says, he, he doesn't just say, he could have just stopped after the first um, thing he, he would do. He, could have stopped after he says, verse 6, I will bring you out from the hard labors of the Egyptians. Uh, I will end, I will end uh, uh, Pharaoh's oppression of you so you can go back to living your lives in Egypt and go back to the, the comfortable way you used to live. He, he could have done that, but he doesn't stop there. He says, I will deliver you from their slavery. He, he's going to, it's, this is full deliverance. He will deliver them from the cause of the oppression. Slavery and all that entails. The, their allegiance to Pharaoh, he will deliver them from, from that. He will deliver them from Pharaoh's power and authority. So Exodus isn't just about escape, it's about total victory. God will completely undo Egypt's power. Remember how what Moses said to God in chapter 5, verse 23? Do you remember how he ended it? Moses said, you have not delivered your people at all. And what does God say three times in verse 6? He begs to differ, right? I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will also redeem you. Three times, he says, in, in different ways, he will deliver them. But it will be more than just a deliverance. It's, even, it's more than that. It's a personal relationship. He will have a personal relationship with them. Verse 7. I will take you from my people, and I will be your God. God will have a personal relationship with his people. God is 
sovereign over sovereign over everything, but he he's also close to us. He's imminent. He, there's there's intimacy with God. He says, verse seven, I will take you from my people, and I will be your God. And then he says, you shall know, you shall know me. You shall know. Remember how chapter 2 ended? How did chapter 2 end? It said that God saw the sons of Israel, chapter 2, verse 25, and then it said, and God knew them, right? And remember we talked about what that meant, God knew them, like to know, the word is used of Adam knowing Eve, right? It's used of marital intimacy, the full knowledge of a, of, a, of, a, of a husband knowing a wife and a wife knowing a husband. That's how close. That's how intimate. And so, uh, yes, God will know Israel. But you know what? Israel has to know God back. It has to be a reciprocal relationship. Uh, I will know you and you will know me. That's our relationship. God knows us fully, completely, when we grow in the knowledge of Him. And when we go to heaven, what? We fully know Him. Full knowledge. But we will know something even more. You shall, verse 7, you shall know that I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And He, he said before in, in chapter 3, I am who I am. Now He says in verse 7, I am Yahweh. Then if you go to Isaiah, he says, I am he. And then when we get to, to the Gospels, what does Jesus say? I, I am the life. I am the bread of life. I am the true line. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Right? So, as Scripture progresses, God reveals more of his name. God reveals more of who he is. Through the Old Testament history through Isaiah, and then we get to Jesus, where it's full knowledge, full knowledge of God through Christ. So the pinnacle is Jesus. He is the name of God. In verses 7 and 8, Israel must learn how high God's sovereignty is over all, and they must learn how deep God's love is for them. So Israel will become Yahweh's people in the full sense when it knows all that Yahweh will do on Israel's behalf. Quickly look at verse 8. He says, I will bring you to the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. So God will bring Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to the land. And, and it says, who, who's he, who, who is God talking to in verse 8? Who's God talking to in verse 8? It's not a trick question. He's talking to Moses, right? Yeah, verse 2, God spoke to Moses. In verse 8, what does he tell Moses? What's the first thing he says? Okay. Now, what's strange about that? What's strange about verse 8? He doesn't get it. So is God lying here? How does, how does Moses get into the promised land? Resurrection. <laughs> resurrection. Yeah, very good. Through a resurrection. 
Jesus talks about that in um, uh, to the Pharisees, you know, uh, when, he, when he speaks of you know when, when God said I am to Abraham, how, how is how is how is that, how is that true when when Abraham was dead? So so he says, yeah, I'm going to bring you to the land. And I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, I will give it to you, Moses, for a possession. This is implying resurrection. Um, and so, whatever some liberal says, we don't. The, 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 the Bible doesn't teach the resurrect, or the Old Testament doesn't teach resurrection. You can say no, it's in it's in Exodus, or it's it's in the second book, clearly, absolutely clearly. Um, so he says, I want to bring you to the land, but what we've been seeing so far is that the promise of the land is secondary to knowing God. Like, knowing Yahweh must be Israel's priority. And so, let me ask you a question. God promises deliverance from Egypt. God uh, takes them to the promised land. Why doesn't the story end after Israel goes into the promised land? Why doesn't it st stop? Why does it? Why, why doesn't it stop after Joshua? Because they have not fully known God. Because they they still don't know Him. So there's the there's this. They have the horizontal promises, but the, they still don't know Yahweh vertically. There's still not that, and so and so. So we know that in the end, Israel turns and knows God. And that's the end of the story. In the end? Yes, in the end. So when Christ returns to the Millennial Kingdom, Israel turns to know God. And that's when the story ends. Because now, they, Moses, they enter in the land. Abraham enters, they're, they're resurrected. But more, but and they, they're able to do that, and the story ends because now Israel knows their God, right? And that's the purpose of Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel uh, uh, prophesies of the return of Christ, and then Ezekiel forty through forty-eight, he builds a temple, right? A new temple. Why? Because now they truly worship him. They truly worship God. They truly know Yahweh, and Yahweh knows them. And that's when the story ends. That's when the story ends. But before the temple is built, what happens in Ezekiel? They get a new heart, right? They get a new heart. There's a new heart. So you get a new heart, and then the temple is built. Because that was always what God was after, their heart, that they would know him. Um, verse 9. Moses speaks to the sons of Israel. They did not listen to Moses on account of their account of their weakness of spirit and hard slavery. Does does Israel believe? No, not really. Not really. See, the, the slavery doesn't steal their faith. The the slavery reveals what's already in them. They they had no real faith. The slavery, the hard slavery, just reveals what was already in their hearts. It was a, it was a weakness of. Spirit to Israel in verse nine, Moses sounds like a crazy person. He's gonna, guys, don't worry. He's gonna do all this. He's Yahweh. He's Yahweh. And Israel, they're looking for straw, and they're 
humiliated and being humiliated under this back-breaking work. And uh, they're just, they're stuck in this quicksand of unbelief. They're sinking fast. They don't believe. They don't really believe. Now, God then tells Moses in verse 10 and 11, Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, Come, tell Pharaoh king of Egypt to let the sons of Israel go out of his land. What do you think Moses is thinking at this point in verse 11? Right after verse 9 happened. What, what would be the, what would a weak faith kind of say to you? What would be the natural response in light of what happened in verse 9? Verse 9, you just tell Israel that what God said to them, and they don't listen to you, and now God says, now you need to tell the, you know, you need to tell, you need to tell Pharaoh what I'm going to do. So what is, what is Moses thinking at this point, verse 11? Anybody? Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, because why, why, why is he freaking out? After God speaks to... Nobody pays attention to him, nobody believes what he's saying, nobody... Right. So if Israel doesn't believe, why would Pharaoh believe? It's evil. If God's people don't even believe, if God's own people don't believe, why would Pharaoh, the enemy of God, believe? And that's exactly what Moses said in verse 12. Moses spoke before Yahweh, saying, Behold, the sons of Israel have not listened to me, how then will Pharaoh listen to me? This is only logical. But Moses say, I'm being logical, Yahweh. Instead of being faithful. When it comes to trusting God, God is not interested in, in our logic. Um, he wants us to trust Him. Just trust Him. Moses is, in a work, Moses is a work in progress. He's struggling with his faith. God has a lot of work to do in him. And then he, and then he gives this lame excuse at the end of 12 that we saw before. God, I'm a man of, I am of uncircumcised lips. He is saying in a disingenuous way, you know, I'm not, I'm not a very good public speaker. <laughs> I'm this, I, I'm, not, I'm not cut out for this deliverer role. Moses is discouraged. He's pessimistic, pessimistic, he wants out. But as we see in verse 13 and the and following, God knows better. God knows better. Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron and gave them the command for the sons of Israel and for, and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. What's kind of um what's kind of interesting in verse 13? Yahweh doesn't speak anymore. Just give him a charge. What? He doesn't kind of back and forth anymore. Okay, okay. Well, okay. But what else is... It's interesting because he puts Israel and Pharaoh on the same level. They're both on the same level. The command is to do for the sons of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Commanded for both parties. Because why? They're both faithless. They both have no faith. They both deserve judgment. They both deserve judgment. But only one gets judged and the other chose, receives what? Grace. Grace. They both deserve, everybody deserves what Pharaoh gets. 
but one gets grace. So if this were a Netflix series, you know, this is the ideal point to end the episode. This is the point just before the resolution of the suspense. So this is how the episode, episode five, episode, you know, six ends. You can't wait to get to the next episode to see what's the resolution of Moses' struggle to believe. You move to the next episode, and how does this next episode begin? It strangely begins with a, a genealogy of Moses and Aaron in verses 14 through 27. Yeah. It strangely begins with the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. And, and so, you know, after verse 13, you're thinking, what are you thinking at this point after verse 13? Who are you questioning? You're questioning Moses. Is Moses really the right person for the job? He seems like he's a mistake. I, I, God, I think you made a wrong choice about the car, starting quarterback. You know, this is like, you know, this is like, take, maybe we need to take him out. Take him out of the game, like, Chris, you know, Cristiano, right? Is he really the leader of God's people? And so, in comes, we have these questions after 13 about Moses. And then, in verse 14 through 27, we have this genealogy. So, how does the genealogy of Moses and Aaron resolve these doubts people have about Moses? How does the genealogy resolve these doubts about Moses? I mean, what are, what are the purposes of genealogy play? Like in Matthew and Luke, what's the purpose of that genealogy? Okay, what? Well, okay. Okay. What else? What's the purpose of Matthew's genealogy? Pointing to Christ. To prove what about kingship? The legitimacy of the kingship. Yeah, he's the king. This is legitimate. Even though he'll be born in the manger of a Virgin Mary, the shepherds coming. He's the king. In spite of this humble beginning, Bethlehem town, he's the king. And so what do you think the genealogy is saying here of Moses? In spite of how pathetic Moses looks, he's the guy for the job. He's the guy. He, he, he's part of the right family. The part, the right of the, he, he, he's part of the right line. From Levi? He, he's a line of the Levites. He's a line of the priests. It's a line of leaders. So the genealogy is the evidence for doubters that Moses is the guy. Let, let me give you Moses' genealogy. And so the, the genealogy starts with Reuben. This is a standard way a genealogy began. The, the firstborn would come first. And um, even though he lost that title, the genealogy just takes the standard form of, a, of an ancient genealogy of the ancient Near East. Next is Simeon, he's the second born, verse 15. And again, this is according to proper order, the form. Um, and and there, we don't go on, we don't get the descendants of Simeon or 
I mean, we don't get the descendants of Simeon's kids. We don't get the descendants of uh, Reuben's kids, Hanak, Palu. But it just, it just kind of stops there. Why? Because Moses and Aaron, they're not descended from either Reuben or Simeon. So it's kind of pointless to kind of go any further. And so we go to the thirdborn. And this is, this is Aaron's and Moses' patriarch. This is, this is their kind of, their, their father, the father, their, their, their ancient father down the line. And uh, this is the priestly line. The, through the line of Levi, the priest will, this, this is who will, uh, the priest will come from. And, and Moses and Aaron are part of the line. Uh, Aaron's a, is not a mistake. Uh, Moses is not a mistake. And, you know, Aaron, I mean, we know about Aaron. He's the capitulator, right? He's like, he does whatever they tell him. Like, Aaron, make us a, a golden calf. Okay, I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> That's what they're thinking, and, and, and Moses, God is saying, no, Aaron's not a mistake either. Aaron's not a mistake, Moses is not a mistake. And so we go on, um, we see the line of these, these the priests, and then in verse 23, um, Aaron takes Mary's uh, Elisheba, she's the daughter of Ananadab, and uh, the, the, the she, uh, Elisheba is the sister of Nishan, uh, what, what tribe is Ammonadab and the sister of Nephishan from? Well, if go to Numbers chapter 2, it says uh, we get those names. Now the chapter 2, verse 3, Numbers, Now those who camp on the east side where the sunrise shall be of the standard of the camp of Judah by their armies, and the leader of the sons of Judah Nishan, the son of Ammonadab. So they're part of what uh, tribe? Levi. Uh, Judah. Judah. Now, now go to Ruth. Now go to the book of Ruth. And And look at that final, um, that final genealogy in Ruth chapter four. And who's who's in the who's in this genealogy? Line of David, the from the Boaz. Aminadab and who else? That's Sean, right? And, and so they're part of David's line. And and David's line is what? Whose line is that? The Messiah's line. And so, here we see this relationship between Moses' line and Jesus' line in this genealogy. They're not connected biologically, but there's this theological connection that the way Moses and the priesthood works uh, intersects with Jesus' line. The way Moses' Moses' role and the priest's priest role they support the, the role of Jesus. There's a supporting role that Moses plays in the Messiah's coming. Right? The, he prepares. He helps prepare. He he Moses and the priest and I, they facilitate Christ's arrival. And so in other words, God is saying, we need Moses. We need Moses because we need Jesus. So you have um, from Judah the, like the kingship lineage, like 
Uh, so, you, so you have Judah, you have all these, these all these families. Although, although, like, you can get, like, the, that from Judah, the lineage of, of kingship for Jesus. Yes, you can. You and can. then, yeah. and from these other lines, the priesthood of Jesus? No, the priesthood, you... they don't intersect biologically. Yeah. They don't, but can you make a, like, a... Yeah. They, they intersect, like, the, symbolically? They or... intersect, uh, more than symbolically, they intersect, uh, in terms of, of how you need a priesthood, right? You need a priesthood. You need that priesthood to prepare for Jesus, to establish Jesus' credentials, right? Because he's also Because he's also a priest. He's also the sacrifice. Uh, you need Moses because he's a prophet who, what, is a foreshadowing of a greater prophet, Jesus. So Moses established the category of prophet, Right? To prepare for Jesus. Right? So, uh, Moses theologically uh, facilitates Jesus' arrival. And this genealogy kind of shows it, kind of makes that link through marriage, but it's making a larger point. God is making a larger point that we need Moses. Moses is not a, 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 a mistake. I need him because he's so integral for the arrival of Jesus Christ. So I need him. And so you see this, it's like a clue, it's a clue. It's a clue he's giving us with Amminadab and Nishan. Well, why is that there? Well, if you look at elsewhere, you see he's part of Ruth's genealogy. He's part, not only is he part of Judah, he's part of the direct lineage. And so you see this kind of theological relationship between Moses' line and David's line, right? There's that, there's that uh, through this marriage. So it's kind of a hint, a hint of what is coming. So, yeah. So, um, so there you go. There you have, uh, you have that. You have, um, you have Korah in verse twenty-four. He's going to be, he's going to be a lead. He, he's part of the Korah's rebellion. There's verse 23, there's Nadab and Abihu, they're, they're the, the, the sons who were, the rotten sons who were killed for offering strange fire, strange incense. There's Phinehas in verse 25, Aaron's son, and remember he, uh, in Baal Peor, he, he uh, uh, keeps God, he, he placates God's anger, he keeps God from killing all the Israelites, so he plays a big role, and so... Eliezer is, is, is mentioned here. So you have all these people that have this connection with Moses and, and God is saying, look, like, you need Moses because all these people, all, these, all the roles they play, they intersect with Moses. Moses isn't a mistake. But we need Moses, guys. <laughs> Don't give up on Moses. Don't give up on Moses. This is my plan. I'm working on my plan. Through my genealogy, so it's it's really a, it's very you know very this very sophisticated uh, way of making these theological points, right? This genealogy it's, it may it may seem at first glance like this is a random, you know, this is kind of a random placement. Why here at this point? No, God is making this strong point at the at the at the most crucial time, right? You think Moses is a loser. 
And he said, no, 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 he's not, let, me, let me establish these hard uh, sovereign realities. Let me establish this geneal genealogical reality that I need Moses, we need Moses. And uh, give, give, give Moses a chance. I'm, I'm not through with him. I'm not through with him. This is just the 